The content of this podcast should not be considered financial or investment advice. All interviews and discussions are opinions only, and the podcast has been created without taking into consideration the listener's objectives, financial situation, or needs. Listeners should consider obtaining independent advice before making any financial decisions. Welcome to this edition of Stockhead's uh, Wildcatter Report. Today we're delighted to have Mark Thompson join us from Talga Resources. Talga is a sort of new energy uh, company, has a market capitalisation, COVID-19 affected now 91 million, has plenty of cash in the bank. At last uh, record was about $11 million, I guess, at the end of last year. Uh, And the company is working in three main areas. It's got a Uh, graphite deposit in Sweden and through that it's working to develop uh, products for a uh, anode, a graphite based anode suitable for lithium ion batteries and also it's recently been granted a REACH certification for the production of graphene which has applications in many areas including uh, packaging applications and coating. So uh, having said that Mark, welcome uh, to the podcast. Thanks, Peter. Mark, I just wonder if you could give the listener a little bit of a background on yourself and how you came to Talga and how Talga has made this journey to the exact opposite side of the earth from uh, Western Australia to be developing, um, you know, battery technology metals. Sure. The uh, my, my background is in mining and exploration. I think I started my career in the late 80s, so I guess that's about a good 30 years of experience now. Uh, starting in West Australia, but then with a very global um, experience, around, especially in South America and Africa and across Europe, as well as Australia. So uh, while it was always mining focus, uh, personally, I've always been involved in uh, more heavily in other sciences. So in things like paleontology, uh, soft tissue preservation of dinosaurs, things like that. So uh, chemistry was always something that was uh, there in parallel throughout my mining career. Uh, I started Telga in 2010, so we're actually 10 years old this year in, in July, and it was originally set up on some gold assets, but in early 2011, I saw the lithium-ion battery cut open for the first time and just noticed how much graphite was in it. Of course, I was to discover that about, about half of a lithium-ion battery is by volume is graphite. And at that time, I didn't know much about it. I looked into it and started getting very excited about the potential long-term growth of lithium-ion batteries and how that would affect uh, graphite insofar as that an industry that was hundreds of years old was very stable, growing very slowly, pricing going up and down predominantly around the steel industry. And I could see that lithium-ion batteries was actually going to require huge quantities and new sources of supply of graphite and that this was would be an area I'd be happy to, to work on for a long time. So uh, in late 2011, we started pegging deposits, graphite deposits in Sweden. Uh, by 2012, I purchased a company from Tech. Uh, at the time, it was called Tech Cominco, and we purchased their Canadian company to get all of their assets in Sweden, which included uh, access uh, to 100% ownership of uh, what is still today the world's highest grade uh, Jork or NI43 resource of, of graphite. And since then, to be honest, it's been a journey of uh, working out the processing, the metallurgy, uh, customers and markets to 
put us into a position where we can be actually a global leader in the production of graphite for for batteries and uh, graphene additives. Yeah, so graphite had a history, as you said, as you know, for fire bricks, for furnaces, and and other very small applications. And now the opening up of this uh, new battery technology has made a massive uh, difference in the in the outlook uh, for the for the product. Yeah, exactly. It's a brand new demand driver. It didn't exist at all before. I mean, 20 years ago, even they, they actually used types of coal in the early lithium-ion batteries. And then when graphite was discovered, that's actually for predominantly why um, uh, one of the guys who won the Nobel Prize recently for lithium-ion batteries was uh, awarded was for his work, particularly in creating graphite anodes. The interlayered, uh, the intercalated abilities of, of graphite is what works compared to an amorphous carbon. So, yeah, it's been, it's fundamental now to lithium-ion batteries, of course, went from electronic devices and now looking at cars and on mass and grid storage. And so that growth profile is something that will drive new demand. And, of course, we have to be clear that graphite can be made, well, sort of two ways. You can either mine it or you can synthesize it. Yeah. But the, the synthetic way, uh, this is actually poorly known, even by auto OEMs until recently, we've been busy pointing it out to them, that supply chain of synthetic graphite. Synthetic graphite is made from petroleum waste products, which then have to be cooked at about 3,000 degrees Celsius for three weeks continuously. <laughs> is that all? And yeah, that's all. <laughs> so, you know, basically, you know, a large part of the, 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 the temperature of the surface of the sun for three weeks. Now... To make that, obviously, that's a huge power cost. So the cheapest places to power that are actually places like Inner Mongolia with their coal fields. So you can imagine you've actually got currently the current supply chain of synthetic graphite is uh, these petroleum waste being transported by uh, bunker fuel driven ships, uh, tr- then by diesel powered trains using coal f- coal powered uh, energy to graphitize the waste into graphite, mm. and then that supply chain has to bring it all back out again. So and it's not a very uh, not a very environmentally friendly process. It's the dirty it's the dirty black secret of batteries, mm. frankly. So while it does produce a product that's very stable and has got good cycling capacity over time, it also actually doesn't charge very fast. So actually, it doesn't do a lot of things that consumers want in their batteries. So. Uh, while today the synthetic natural mix in a battery, so let's also be clear that lithium-ion battery anodes tend to be a blend of synthetic and natural to get the properties you want. But the, the latest trend is that they're, they're increasing the amounts of natural. That's because natural charges faster. Um, so And also we haven't really, um, by examining that CO2 of that supply chain, if you, if you care about that, you can see that a natural deposit that was graphitized by nature in the Earth's crust if you extract that and use something as we do, like hydropower, to process it into an anode, that's uh, that's an almost fossil-free way of producing the same product. So we've we've actually run some numbers recently, and I think for Chinese synthetic anode to make a hundred gigawatt hours of batteries, so a, a big giga, one of these mega factories that are being built, so a hundred gig uh, of batteries would require about three point seven million tons of CO two. In, if you did in China, and for Talgo to produce it, it would take about 100 tonnes. So um, the price of, uh, of graphite has been quite volatile over the last 10 years. Now, I don't suppose that it's uh, Talgo's you know, end mission in life to actually be selling uh, graphite. You're wanting to go the value-added chain, but how has the price of graphite moved in the last 10 years? Uh, well, yeah, good point. So around 10 years ago, it was spiking. Uh, China introduced tariffs and taxes for the first time on it 
and it decreased the amount of exports and the world went through a, a bottleneck where it couldn't get enough of the material. That's the price right. has basically tripled mm. uh, of the raw materials. This is So the prices that are public are flake graphite prices. They're, they're, they're raw materials. They're just concentrate grades, really. Um, the prices of then uh, looking at refining that material into battery anode, you can now over the last couple of years see some of that pricing. Uh, and that is a lot more stable. In fact, it's been increasing up until the last probably half a year. And I guess it's fair to say that in the last six months, it's taken a bit of a dip along with the Chinese subsidies and things like that coming off. But um, the prices are you know, four to five times higher than the raw material price. And that is actually a raw anode material. It's not actually called, if you speak to a Japanese or Korean battery maker, they don't call that anode, they call that graphite still. It's okay. purified to 99.95% and it's shaped to a sort of slightly spherical shape. And that material is selling for in the region of around three to 4,000 tonne US. And uh, that material is still graphite. It's not coated and it's not processed to the point where you can use it as an anode. Yeah, the, the, I, I had in my mind that graphite uh, was sort of a graphite concentrate, depending on quality, would some, be something between two hundred and a thousand dollars a ton. But you're saying this is yep. the this is the upgraded product to be three to four thousand dollars a ton. Correct, and then that is still classified as graphite. It's just you purified it and spherinized it, and and then anode, like we make, is actually a product that the battery cell maker buy, can buy and put onto their anodes. Just like make them in the factory straight away. Pour, mix your anode, sorry, with a slurry into a slurry with say water or, or another solvent, and then pour it onto the current collector of the battery to form the final anode. That's what we make, and that product sells for you know another two times higher than that again. Yeah. So can you just run us through this this anode technology, the development, the time frame really to commercialization? Uh, you know, what sort of patents and protections you have on the technology you've developed? Yeah, yeah sure. The uh, so we started from our, our deposits very, very different to everyone else. It's highly it's a highly crystalline, very flake deposit, but the flakes are very small. So metallurgically we had to come up with a way to to sort of recover this stuff on mass. And in early fourteen we discovered that the, the graphite ore was so conductive from our Vertangi project that you could run an electric current through it. Uh, in the presence of a liquid in, in, in water with some additives and we could get the ore to exfoliate directly into graphene. So we started becoming specialists at the sort of atomic level uh, physiochemistry of our ore and over the years as we commercialised the graphene that was that's and that's still underway but we also did some tests where we someone basically questioned that and said well what if you went back and just crushed and ground it like a normal flake producer would and how would that work and we thought well that that's probably challenging but let's give it a go and we discovered that we could do it uh, we could do it highly successfully with very high recoveries and when we used that material in an anode for a lithium ion battery we were shocked to find that it had really high capacity uh, actually to a capacity nearly 20 percent higher than what was theoretically possible and we eventually found out why that was and that's a bit of a trade secret right now uh, but we started then, we, we have got patents pending for our processing technology. Uh, we have some uh, patents underway on our anode technology. Uh, and we started, I guess, it was only in early 18 that we came public and at the Hanover Battery Show in Europe. And our stand was sort of swamped with interest from auto OEMs and, and cell makers looking at wanting to sample this material that we realised that we had to scale up the production of it 
and uh, essentially invest in integrating the anode product into our production capacity or into our plans. And by doing some metrics on that, in early 19, we actually published a PFS showing that um, for essentially for you know about $150 million US, you could build something that, that could sell $200 million a year of uh, anodes for, for 22 years. So what's the state of play of your relationship with the, you know, the customers who would be taking this product to, for their battery manufacturing? Yeah, that's a critical part of our business is that, uh, to be honest, the mining and, and processing of graphite is not normally technically complex. With us, it's quite specialised to, to integrate it directly into what we make into the anodes. But uh, this does require interaction with the customers to get them to utilise a new product. So we've got ex-Toyota, uh, uh, ex-Tata, ex-Dyson sort of employees that work for us. And we've got about 15 PhDs uh, in uh, chemistry and physics that work for us in the battery uh, and graphene divisions, and they interact with the customers. And I would say that most of our customers are not. So So I guess in difference to other companies, we... Our relationships aren't with trading houses necessarily. I mean, we have some, but we also interact strongly with the cell makers themselves, anode and cell makers. We also interact with auto OEMs. And in fact, uh, you know, we've probably got uh, a commercial register has between five and 10 auto OEMs now. Uh, and that is because they're the ones that drive what performance they want. They also are big drivers of looking at their CO2 budgets for the products. And they also look at the localization strategy. So by working directly with the customers, say that the final end user being an auto OEM, they will help drive the battery cell maker to test and use our product and drive the project where that material gets tested and goes through their very stringent series of, of tests to get up to where they can they can buy the product. Yeah, it takes ages for these battery makers to get used to, even with the you know the uh, the lithium concentrates or the lithium hydroxides or uh, or uh, carbonates that are produced. You know, it has to be to size and to chemical quality, and then they want to test it. They say for six months, and then they say give us some more because we're going to do another six months of tests. So it takes a while. Yeah, we're in that process. But fortunately, I mean, we started that actually in, in 18 with our early stage uh, materials going out, but the bottleneck has actually been scale. So yeah. the, we've been looking to scale up. And so recently we announced that we've done a 60-tonne ore sample through a toll plant to make to make a, a load of con. So now we can actually, we're in the process of, of purifying that up to make uh, tonnes of Talnode C, which is our anode product. Yeah. Uh, so, so on tonnage scale, we can now be sending that to customers. And particularly with... Uh, certainly in the past, our focus was with the battery makers and we didn't really know what they were going to do with it. And then we started interacting more with the electronics companies, uh, a lot of them are brand names uh, that you would know, and they would they would tell us what they want and that they have their own battery labs and that, that tells the Asian battery makers what to the, make. The Panasonics of the world. Of the world, yes. Yeah. And, uh, so, uh, Mark, um, you, yeah. you've, you've, you need to... Uh, to, to make product in, in uh, tonnage or in, in quantity for these people to test, how far upstream do you think these uh, customers, in inverted commas, might like to go when it comes to building a commercial-scale plant? Uh, would they be potential cornerstone investors or, or not? Do you think the, you'd go to the market in general? Uh, potentially, and obviously it's a sensitive subject to talk about in public, but I, I guess I could say that I think a lot of them are not used to the idea of direct equity investment in the in the company, in the head company, yes. but some of them are interested in the, the project equity level. 
Um, and I would also say it's fair to say that generally they don't do that either, to be honest. So yes. if, if you just had a technology alone, like a piece of a patent pending somewhere and you, you were just working on one particular battery tech, they might invest directly in that startup because it's just this very clean little thing. But when you've got a fully vertically integrated supply chain like we have, it's it's a lot more diligence and, and things to look at going into it. So I think the approach at the moment is more getting them over the line where, A, they want to tell us how much material they want to buy so that this we can use this to underwrite the financing of the project. And they will drive their partners or their sub- current supply chain partners They want that they're already buying material from they then tell them, well, you've got to do a deal with Talga so that we can get this hold of this material. That's the way. It's, it's sort of being done by proxy right now. Yeah. Okay, Mark, that's very clear. Thanks for that. Uh, can we just jump across to Graphene? And I mentioned earlier that the, the company has uh, been given uh, manufacturing clearance through the REA CH approvals process for yep. uh, graphene production. Uh, where are you at with that uh, commercialising the graphene that you can produce from your graphite material? So, so we've always targeted with with graphene. We've always known that the challenge was how you use the product. So it's not necessarily actually the making of it. It's the that is a challenge making it in scale, but but it's actually getting customers and integrating customers to use it. Graphene is so. Uh, fiendishly difficult to be honest to add to various things that you need certain chemical functionalization to for them to be able to blend it into their current products and existing products so that 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 test work for materials i would say is even longer than batteries uh now i can see that new materials not even advanced materials but just introducing a new material into the supply chain is actually a longer process than battery commercialization uh, but where i'd say we're at is that we've focused on several really big applications like coatings uh, and uh, and batteries and and, uh, and packaging uh, and concrete and by focusing on just a small number of key customers in those areas we think that'll be the fastest and best way to bring those materials to the market however you are sort of I guess a bit of a victim of well whatever speed that company wants to go you know you mm. can't force a you know 60 billion dollar company to to you know, drop everything and do what you want but um, we've got numerous programs underway we've got tens of programs underway with companies like that in those fields and they go very well as you would have seen with the release on the graphene coating on the ship recently that those things are maturing pretty well and the the application in concrete is is massive because uh, concrete or cement is a very high uh, carbon emitting uh, technology. Uh, you're just slaking yep. the lime. You're, you're putting out a lot of carbon dioxide, and if you can produce concrete that's twenty or thirty percent stronger uh, with a graphene um, small amount of graphene in it, it means you can use less cement, less concrete in your construction technologies, and therefore have a much lower embedded uh, energy component in uh, in your carbon component in your construction. Correct. And the other thing you can do is add functionality. So while you're doing that, you can also make uh, electricity, uh, you can make an electric current flow through the concrete, which you can then use for either heating of, of the object or for potentially even for the transmission of electric uh, power through the concrete. So you can set up an induction coil essentially within the concrete to charge a battery, for example. So these are these are big, uh, yeah, very big things, and they do take a, a while uh, to to develop. But we think they're very worthy, and I'd say that ultimately we're one of the few that could produce at scale and the and the price needed to make those sorts of things happen. 
So what what's your scale now? You could produce uh, ten, you know, a kilo or ten kilos of bench top scale for test work at the moment. Is that where you are? Uh, we're bigger than that. We don't identify it exactly, but no, we're a lot bigger than that okay. uh, at, the, at the plant. But we're not. Just to be clear, though, we're not trying to be. Yeah, you know, we don't believe that you can just like sell even even uh, you know hundreds of kilos to tons right now uh, at and and therefore make a profit to run a, a public company our, our scale. Um, we focus on getting a big deal, something that will lead to contracts with hundreds to thousands of tonnes of material, and we'll build this alongside the anode plant once it's up and running. So the, we're, not, we're not trying to like trade our out from small amounts. We've just seen that that's, that process is too slow for a public company to do. Um, so we're just working with really big players, and when the product's ready to go to market, that'll convert in hundreds to thousands of tonnes of demand uh, and eventually, actually, even be bigger than the anode business, but uh, you know, in future, but that's going to take a long time. But in the in the short term, we're not driven by trying to make what are not significant enough amounts of money compared to getting the anode project in a production, and then using that development to underwrite the continued growth in the graphene development. Sure. And what's the status now of the Niska graphite deposit? Is, that, is, that, is there any actual work going on there or you just go there when yeah. you need some material? <laughs> no. So, well, that's not as far. So, so we've got, a, they're all sort of one giant deposit. We've just given different parts of it, different names as resources go and depending on where the tenement boundaries are. Okay. So cur- currently what we call the Nordsvara South deposit, we've actually got a stockpile of about two and a half thousand tonnes of ore that we can use for scaling up the telnode and the, the graphene materials now. Uh, we've got a permit that we applied for in August for what we call stage one, which is the mining of 25,000 tonnes of ore, which... We, uh, we, I think we told the market that would should be coming through in the first quarter and we're still on track to receive news of that this quarter and, and see how that goes. Uh, stage two permits, which is for 100,000 tonne a year of mining of graphite ore, is scheduled to go in next month. So again, we said we'd put that in in the first quarter and we're on track to do that. Uh, separately from the mine and the mill, we have to also uh, permit and develop the refinery site in the northern Sweden town of Luleå. Uh, this is adjacent to a steel mill and port complex, and uh, that permitting is actually in charge of by the local municipality, so we're not exactly in control of that. But we have been allocated our first space, uh, the first space in the industrial facility for that, and we also, have, of course, always have plans B, C and D if there's any delays in that process. So, Mark, how do you see the uh, the company evolving over the next 12 months? Clearly, it's all hands on decks on the anode development uh, and yeah. you're still working on basically talking to customers in both ends, both graphene and anode. Is that the way? And you'd expect to see some developments with customers along the track. Yes, and the, and the challenge is that, of course, the normal supply chain for industrial products does not go public. So these are not like raw metals and concentrates. These are actual parts of the supply chain for cars and laptops and phones and things like that. So you, they don't normally go revealing those things. They don't want you to go public. So out of the whatever 100-plus type agreements or developments we have with companies, none of them really want to go public, and only some are you're seeing a small fraction of them that are with groups like Bosch or, or, yeah. or BASF previously. Um, so... The, the challenge is to go public with those, but I think that we're close enough on some of these things that there'll be hopefully disclosable events uh, in the short term. Uh, we're mostly focusing on finance, to be honest, on stage one development. So obviously the way that gets financed and who that's financed with will 
uh, be something everyone can see. So that's the short-term focus is on the funding for the project to put in a, the stage one into production, um, the continued scale up with the customers and hopefully some of those customers allowing us to go public about them. And if not, at least those plans can be made public as well. And I'd say that, um, yeah, we're looking good for, for those things uh, uh, sooner than uh, people think um, or would would uh, be expecting based on you know, how how long this process does go for. Yeah, yeah, that's one of the the issues with these industrial mineral you know type projects or downstream projects. There's no you can't just look in the paper and see the price. You know, it's like and so yeah. people go, what's the price of graphite? Well, you know, how how long's a piece of string? And so it's really difficult. But I think by association, once you have uh, the partners uh, signed up, it doesn't really matter that. You can't actually give the full financial details. People will go, oh, you know, that's a substantial partner. Uh, we know the size of the, the business going forward. It's going to be massive. Yeah. And I think that should provide a lot of comfort to investors and analysts because it's otherwise it's really difficult for analysts and investors to actually get a handle on how big this thing's going to be. Uh, that's right. And so probably the only thing we'll be able to deliver in public hopefully is a is – a, a brand name or a company that people know and will say, well, if they're involved, it must be okay. You know, behind yep. the scenes, all the diligence of work that they've done over the last two years must must have paid off and it must all be, you know, they'll say, gee, it's real. And those numbers are probably real, even though we can't see the, the behind the scenes uh, deals. But that's the nature of these sorts of contracts. Uh, there'll be individual pricing, actually, for individual customers, depending on volume. And those sorts of discussions are, are underway. Uh, discussions are very advanced on the financing front, and uh, yeah, we're just to be honest, we're in the best shape we've ever been. I know the market's going through some horrendous times, and uh, I, I fully expect people to be, you know, get fed up at times with what is a process that they feel is very slow. But that's how you get the downstream, you know, the massive margins we have, the great potential we have. Um, you, that's how you get that extra performance is going through this process. Well, on that uh, upbeat note, Mark, thank you very much for coming into this Explorers podcast. And I'd say we'll be very keen to get you back in again in June or July, uh, because I think that's a good time frame for you to have kicked a few goals and signed up a few uh, contracts down the road. So thanks very much once again for coming in. Yes, and I look forward to maybe seeing you earlier than that, Peter. Thanks very much.